I, I actually think we're em- we're entering a world of super employment. I think we're we're going to have more jobs than we, we know what to do with in the future. But these will end up being gigs, not full time jobs, and so people will piecemeal their their careers together. I think the most disruptive technology in all human history is going to be driverless technology. I think it will be more disruptive than the invention of the wheel, the invention of electricity, or the invention of the car itself, because it's going to disrupt more people in a shorter period of time than anything in all history. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. The purpose of Fringe FM is to talk about the big issues, not one, not two, all of them, to get the smartest folks on so that we can talk about driverless cars, education, the future of work, and more. And that's exactly what we're doing today. Today, we have Thomas Frey on the program. He's Google's top-rated futurist, a celebrity and accomplished keynote speaker, and the co-founder of the Da Vinci Institute, Colorado-based tech startup incubator. Before that, he spent 15 years at IBM. At the Institute, Thomas works to develop original research studies in the normally not-so-addressed fields, and he's predicted the end of colleges, printed books, but thinks that libraries will in fact thrive. Thomas is a really interesting and accomplished guy, a sought-after speaker. He shared the stage with the likes of Rudy Giuliani, Tom Peters, Jack Welsh. He's well accustomed to speaking with government and Fortune 500 leaders like NASA, IBM, AT&T, First Data, Boeing, Capital One, Visa, you name it. It goes on and on. He's been interviewed in all the major publications, New York Times, Huffington Post, Times of India, USA Today, The Futurist Magazine, and dozens of smaller publications. And he's the author of Communicating with the Future, How Reengineering Inventions Will Alter the Master Code of our future and Epiphany Z, Eight Radical Visions for Transforming Your Future. As you can see, and as you'll be able to see from this episode, Thomas is one smart cat. He's thought quite a bit about the future, and we dive deep into some really, really interesting topics, including how the education system's undergoing enormous change and why college will soon be irrelevant, why Thomas believes we'll have too many jobs for everyone, which careers have the most promise and where you should focus your efforts, why driverless cars will be the most impactful invention ever, The reason automation is additive rather than destructive to jobs. And why fixing toilets is a surefire skill for the future. And now without further ado, I give you Thomas Frey. Do you meditate? I know I do. And we've talked about it a ton in the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back. And she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great. And neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know. And Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. If you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So I saw that Google ranked you as your number one futurist. What was that like? Well, I mean, there, there's lots of ways of getting different rankings. I actually wrote a, wrote a paper recently about modern day grandstanding and how, how people uh, have gotten famous in the past and how they're getting famous today and how they'll get famous in the future. In, in the past, there was very few ways of getting famous. You had to become kind of a 
a star in all the newspapers and then television came along and then you had to become a television star or a radio star. And now, I mean, you could be a Twitch star, you can be a, a Facebook celebrity, you can be a YouTube celebrity. And, and so we have lots more channels for, for fame. And so the idea of, of uh, getting a particular ranking with, with one company, Google carries a lot of cachet, a lot of, a lot of weight. So getting ranked high with Google is always, is always uh, a good thing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, so it's, uh, I'm always working on different areas of notoriety. So yeah, and so I get, to, I get to travel around the world talking about the future. And I think uh, every day is an adventure. So what could be better than that? I know, right? And I would much rather have people like you that are ranked highly and getting some, some celebrities, so to speak, versus, versus an actor who has really nothing to say. We, um, we get people like you on the program because we, t- we try to talk about the future and help people think about it in a more constructive way. I think you've done a really good job of, of thinking about the future. You've made some pretty, pretty big and interesting predictions. So education, I want to jump right there. What are your thoughts? Let's, let's dive deep. Okay. Well, let, let me first say that the true value of a prediction, because predictions invariably you're going to be wrong on these predictions. So you get the timing off, you get uh, some of the details off. And even if, even if you get a prediction perfect, you, you just absolutely nail that prediction. By the time we get there, the whole thing just feels different. It feels natural. So it's uh, the, the, the world of predictions, the, the true value of a prediction is just to force somebody to think about some time and space in the future and, and, and draw your own conclusion. So that, that's the true value of, of a prediction. So yeah, the education space is going to be changing. And uh, I, I think the, the biggest company on the internet in 2030 is going to be an education-based company that we haven't heard of yet. I, I really think that that's the largest opportunity out there that nobody's quite cracked the code for. Is it because of the system itself? Right now, our education system has some challenges, to say the least. Yeah, we've, we've really kind of hamstrung ourselves with, with a, kind of an archaic system. and. We've kind of ingrained this into society and our thinking that it can't be done any other way. But somebody's going to figure that out. Somebody's going to figure out a a faster, more efficient way of getting information into our heads. And I don't know, suddenly it's going to seem like a night and day difference that a new way of learning be two times faster, four times faster, maybe even 10 times faster than anything today. That's where I think that, you know, the people that adapt the new system just suddenly are light years brighter and more more informed than the people that aren't using it. That's what it seems like. And uh, uh, so I think we're right around the corner from that happening. I think even more important than going faster is avoiding pitfalls and thinking about different problems. So if you're running a race, sure, you might be able to run a, a six minute mile. But if I cut across the the field every time I might be able to run like a, a 30 second mile. How do we think about problems differently? Because I think with the with the explosion of intelligence, specifically machine intelligence, a lot of the a lot of the knowledge is just less valuable. Yeah, well, part of the problem, first of all, there's there's no one size fits all formula for education. If somebody's going to learn how to become a bricklayer, they actually have to lay bricks. If they're going to learn how to become a plumber, they actually have to work with pipe, pipes and toilets and sinks. You know, you know, you just can't learn that in the online world. You have to physically have to do it. But there is lots of information that we can learn in the online world. And by having a system that, I mean, you, you start thinking about what the what the key attributes should be. The the learning module should be bite sized. You should have it hyper individualized so that 
it, it meshes with the, the interests of the individual. It, um, uh, the right time, the right place, the, the right uh, kind of content that you're, you're learning. And so uh, your, your brain is much more receptive to information that, is, that you can put to, put to use right away. If you're learning some abstract philosophy stuff that may or may not ever come into play, your, your, your whole mindset is just you're, you're just vaguely interested in that topic. It's not something that you can implement right away. So there's less urgency. And so you're less likely to absorb that in a serious way. That's kind of dangerous, though, because we get into a situation where we optimize productivity and, and fail or avoid creativity, doesn't it? Yeah, I always think about the, the scene in The Matrix where getting onto a helicopter. Well, you don't know how to fly a helicopter. Well, not yet. And then downloads the helicopter module, learns how to fly it. It, it's like that. I mean, how can we, we learn the information that we have to learn at the, the, the time that we need it? See, see the, I, I ran into this situation a couple of days ago where we were talking about what the difference between a human being you know, 500 years ago and today. And, you know, a person today is much more informed. I mean, we're, we're, we're much more aware of the world around us. That's, that's one of the things that doesn't get talked about very much is, is that the Internet is increasing our awareness of the world around us. Hey, Matt here. Have you ever heard the story of Twitter? No, not Jack Storcy's Twitter. The real Twitter. The one that happened hundreds of years ago and transformed the way that news and communication spread across the world. If not, Thomas is about to share an incredibly interesting story about the way that technology progresses and... So somebody releases a new paper, uh, a new research study in Mexico City, then people in Helsinki and Tokyo and, and Toronto would know about it, you know, 10 minutes later. That's not the way it was, you know, 500 years ago. You know, there there's a a real interesting story about about uh, Paul Reuters when he was starting the, the Reuters news service in the mid 1800s, and uh, his his technology of the day for uh, he was using to beat the competitors as he was using carrier pigeons to carry messages across the Ural Mountains in Europe, and um, and uh, he could uh, shortcut that information. So when in 1865. When Abraham Lincoln, the president of the United States, was assassinated, that information about the presidential assassination in the United States was traveling across the Atlantic in a steamship. It took 12 days for that information to get to Europe. Now, as soon as the steamship arrived, then, then uh, uh, Paul Reuters used the, the birds then to get the information throughout Europe, and he was able to break the, the news story three days before the traditional news media. And so that's one of those interesting stories that helps put things in perspective of how things have changed over the past years. And uh, right now, if, if we don't if we don't have something, if we don't know about something right away, we feel left out. So the average person today is consuming information twelve hours and seven minutes a day that just wasn't even possible twenty years ago. And so that that number keeps climbing, and we 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 feel this this craving for more information. And uh, that, that, I think, is, is such an interesting metric to be watching. It, it is, but garbage in equals garbage out. How do we deal with that? Yeah, true. But um, we're, we're also in the middle of all the stuff that we're consuming. Yeah, we, we're watching sitcoms. We're watching crazy YouTube videos and stuff and we're listening to music. Part of that, though, is, is just part of the, the, the culture today. And, and we're learning that. So I, you know, when I was going through all my college courses, I was thinking about which which college course was the least valuable. And and for me, 
the least valuable one is I had to take a class on learning how to use a, a slide rule. I don't know if you know what a slide rule is, but the slide rules were the precursors to calculators. It's this little metal slide device that all the engineers used those before the, the early 1970s. And uh, that was a required course. I mean, and so not everything that's being taught in colleges is going to be valuable in the future either. So there's ways of putting that in perspective. Do you think that the, the college system is rapidly in the decline is my understanding? Yeah, I think they're going to, uh, we're, we're moving towards an era where they're going to have a lot of trouble times ahead. So there was a, an announcement a couple of weeks ago that uh, the Colorado School of Mines in Golden, Colorado was uh, is going to be offering a degree program in asteroid mining. And, and I thought, wow, that's really farsighted because colleges typically don't do that. And, uh, and so when you start looking at the whole idea of the whole industry, you know, whenever, whenever you start offering a new degree program, the, uh, you have to hire the instructors, you have to create a new curriculum, you have to start recruiting students, and it's a six to seven year pipeline, bare minimum, to start getting talent out of the back end. And so the timing seems about right, because that's when the industry is going to be on uh, kind of the, the early stages of, of getting launched. And, and so they might be uh, perfectly timed for that industry. We'll, we'll wait and see on that one. But, uh, and then, so that prompted me to write a column on 52 other college degrees that uh, for the future that nobody's offering just yet. But this idea of how do we anticipate what the needs of business are four to five years in advance, that doesn't seem possible. In 2012, the Da Vinci Institute that I run, we started a coding program where we were teaching people how to become computer programmers quick and efficiently. To, so they were, they were 13 to 14 week course on learning you know, JavaScript or Ruby on Rails or Python. And uh, we were the second in the country to offer a program like that. And then uh, that quickly mushroomed, and uh, there was uh, last year there was over 550 schools offering coding programs like that. So that's a new type of training. And we started referring to this as a micro college. See, since it's not possible to understand the needs of business four to five years in advance, how do we create these training systems that are rapidly adaptable to the needs of business? And the idea of a micro college seems to, to, to fit that bill quite, quite well. See, in 2014, uh, Facebook bought Oculus Rift uh, for $2 billion. And when they bought Oculus Rift, there was this instant uptick in the demand for virtual reality coders and designers and experience creators. And, and nobody was teaching that. Uh, certainly nobody was teaching the Oculus Rift version of it. And so that, that took time to actually figure out how to create talent for the VR industry. So if you think about this idea of a micro-college, micro-colleges, I think, are going to go off in a thousand different directions, teaching people how to design parts for 3D printers, how to become drone pilots, how to become crowdfunding experts or brewmasters for brew pubs. I, I think we're, we're going to see lots of of interesting shifts in the near future. Hey, Matt here. If you're a parent or a student considering college, please take this to heart. College is an incredibly expensive process to get a piece of paper at this point. And this is something that has been confirmed over and over again by a large number of our guests. We're not saying do not go to college, but we're saying do not feel that you have to go to college. And especially parents do not feel that your kids have to go to college. If there's something else that they want to be doing, or if the skill set and career that they want to pursue 
does not require something that college presents, then consider these microtype colleges and other internship type applications and ways to further a career because you know what? A piece of paper doesn't determine whether or not you can do a job and it doesn't determine whether or not you will have a job. That said, if you're interested in having an epic job, Thomas is about to outline some of the most promising fields. So stay tuned. So we, we did this projection that the average person entering the workforce in 2030 had better plan to reboot their career eight to 10 times throughout their working life. So somebody who has to shift gears that often and do retraining that often will want to do the retraining in the least amount of time, not the most. And that makes traditional colleges a very poor fit for that type of training. So I think that opens the door for uh, kind of an entire new education industry. Especially considering you can drop a hundred grand on a, on a year at some of these schools if you have to do that 10 times. <laughs> and therefore your degree is, well, good luck making your money back. Um, and, uh, I, I would completely agree with pretty much everything that you're saying. What are some of the, what are some of the fields that you said or you guys thought of that would be interesting for colleges or for some type of program to start to offer? You, you mentioned asteroid mining. What are some of the other top programs you think have the biggest potential and are the least talked about? So uh, we, we went down the list of all the emerging technologies. And uh, when you think about, you know, s- s- smart home designs and smart city designs, and start looking at uh, just uh, the, the 3D printing, the IoT, how to, uh, the, the support structure that's going to be needed for the driverless world. I mean, we hear about we hear about all of the jobs going away in the, with driverless technology, but we don't hear about the, kind of the management possibility, the, the the work that still needs to be done, the, the ground crew, the support staff that needs to support the the flying drones and the and the, uh, the driverless vehicles. Because all of these, um, whenever you implement a new piece of equipment, you like an airplane, you put an airplane in the service, you need a ground crew, you need the flight attendants, you need pilots and co-pilots and people selling tickets. Uh, you need this human support staff for the, this piece of technology. And that's the same with every other piece of technology because it all breaks down, it all wears out. There's things that go wrong. And so that's where the human uh, support staff comes into play. And 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 so that's the the new era of jobs, so to speak, is, is the... Uh, uh, the ones that are going to be supporting the emerging technology that we see in the pipeline right now. And that's basically until some more some more advanced technology can be implemented to automate that away? Or do you see, how do you foresee the, foresee the role of jobs, humanity, and AI in the future? Yeah, there's, there's always going to be an exception. I mean, uh, there's, there's things that, that go wrong. We can, we can uh, yeah, we can envision, you know, automation robots that fix other robots and uh, keep them repaired and operational. But that's going to take a long time. I keep reminding people that the cars that we drive today have been in development for over 120 years. So it's taken 120 years to get to, to cars that are this good. So with the emerging technologies, we still have to work our way through a lot of the crappy stages before we get to the really good stuff. And, uh, and, and so much of this, we're really immersed in the crappy stages of it still. That's that I think is is real important to to, to keep in mind that there's it, it just doesn't happen overnight. I mean we can we can automate some of these things, but we're still going to need human support staff along the way because there's still too many things that break down and go wrong. Do you think we go net positive or net negative on jobs due to automation in the next twenty years? I, I actually think we're em- we're entering a world of super employment. I think we're we're going to have more jobs than we, we know what to do with in the future, but these will end up being gigs, not full-time jobs. 
And so people will piecemeal their, their careers together. Uh, one of the big deficiencies right now is we're not teaching anybody how to become a freelancer. That's a, a huge oversight. So the typical scenario is somebody graduates from college and they can't find a job. And after a couple of months, they'll pick up a project and they'll pick up another project and another project. And before they realize that they're working as a freelancer, doing it begrudgingly because they thought the world owed them a full-time job, uh, never realizing that that could become the preferred lifestyle. Because if, if you're an effective freelancer, you're, you take control of your own destiny. So, I mean, learning how to become a freelancer, uh, somebody needs to teach you how to set up your own entity, how to, how to sell yourself, how to market yourself, how to create a balance sheet, how to uh, get insurance for your, your business, how to, how to create contracts and negotiate deals and create websites and all of these, these details. It's, it's an elaborate uh, series of things that you need to know to become an effective freelancer. In the United States right now, we have 1.3 million freelancers that are making over $100,000 a year. So if you, if you ask the question, well, how do I break into a field of becoming a high-priced freelancer? Well, you, you actually have to hang out with other high-paid freelancers. And where do they hang out? And it's, it's, there is no central core. This is where all the freelancers hang out. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so anyway, that's, that's one of my pet peeves. I think that that's, that's a huge opportunity for somebody who wants to take that on. Completely agree. As someone who's done some freelancing in the past, it's a great way to, to build the skills. The nice thing about it is you kind of take on more as you're able to take on more. The responsibilities grow, the, the income, et cetera, grows. And typically, if you guys are getting into freelancing, just break the rules initially. Don't, don't worry too much about it and get things, settled, get things settled out afterwards once you realize that it's going to be something. Because otherwise, there's always too many. There's always too much red tape. Yeah. If somebody asks you, can you do this? The answer is always yes. <laughs> And it's under the table until you hit a certain income. But we can we can get outside of the the illegal ideas and talk a little bit more about uh, a little bit more about where you see us headed in the future. What industries are you most excited about today? I think the most disruptive technology in all human history is going to be driverless technology. I think it will be more disruptive than the invention of the wheel, the invention of electricity, or the invention of the car itself, because it's going to disrupt more people in a shorter period of time than anything in all history. I mean, when you, when you look at this idea, you think of 10 years from now, you step out in front of your house, you pull out your phone and you punch in, I want to go to work, I want to go to school, I want to go shopping. Uh, a vehicle shows up, you jump in, you go to where you want to go and, and it drops you off. And from there, it picks somebody else up and takes them to where they want to go. We transition from this just-in-case mindset I have a car in my garage just in case I need to go somewhere to a just-in-time mindset. I can summon a vehicle at any time that I need it. That is such a significant shift in, in thinking because suddenly we don't have to own our own vehicles. We don't need car insurance. We don't need driver's licenses. We don't need to get traffic tickets. The, the whole structure that we have for regulating uh, transportation seems to go out the window with that. Uh, it, it, it's going to take uh, a couple decades to work our way through that transition, but it, it's going to be such a dramatic shift. The cost of transportation is is going to plummet. The uh, uh, we're going to become a much more fluid society. We don't have all these parking lots everywhere where people are just uh, warehousing their car day and night. Um, it it makes life so much easier on so many levels. I completely agree. I think it'll be incredibly interesting, but there's one thing I want to push back on. 
You said in 10 years, you walk out of your phone, walk out of your house and pull out your phone. Do you really think that's how it'll be? Or do you think we're going to start evolving past phones soon? Well, people can relate to the phone right now. Um, if, it, if it comes in a different form, uh, it could be part of, part of your glasses. It could be a um, pair of contacts that you're wearing. It can just be uh, some other wearable technology that uh, is invisible to the, the human eye. I, we haven't seen what that form is going to be just yet. So yeah, it may not be a, a phone uh, in, in, uh, in the traditional way of thinking about it. I know you've talked a lot about bell curves in the past and how you think about peak this, peak that. I wanted to talk a little bit more about what industries you think have peaked and why. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm anxious to see peak hospital. Uh, <laughs> and, and so if you ask the question of when will we have the peak number of hospital beds in the world, I think that's uh, an interesting question to ask. Uh, when are we going to have the peak number of cars in the world? The, the Middle East, and I've made several trips over to the Middle East this year, uh, they're very concerned about uh, this idea of peak oil. Now, in the past, you know, we talk about peak oil, it's always about the, um, the supply of oil. We're going to run out of oil supply. Well, it doesn't look like we'll ever run out of oil supply, but uh, now it's talked about the peak demand for oil. And even the, the CEO of Exxon has uh, said that we'll probably reach the peak demand for oil somewhere between before 2040. And, and so the Middle East now is, is scrambling, trying to figure out, well, we have a lot of money. Why don't we spend it on trying to create a sustainable economy that's not based on oil? And that becomes a pretty tall order because how do we get new industries in here? How do we start new things and uh, create an environment that uh, kind of favors the startup culture? And, uh, and so they've got, they've got a lot of work cut out for them. Especially in a culture that's typically not so keen on change. Well, yeah. And you can get a startup funded over there real easy. Uh, the country of Qatar has a $6 billion fund that they just announced uh, for startups. And, and so you can get your, your startup funded over there. But then you move over there and then you need to hire talent. Well, getting talent to move over there is, is really challenging because not everybody wants to live in the Middle East. And then if you want to go out and have a beer after work, well, not all these countries allow alcohol. So, so that there's any number of challenges that, aren't, that don't mesh well with the startup culture. Do you think as we move forward, we'll start to get to an era where technology just trumps religion? Because if that's what's holding you back, eventually survival of the fittest? No. The, the, I, I tend to stay away from the religion topic, but I do think that religion is it's, it's like a life form that will, will morph and shift and adapt to the times. And so there's, uh, I was reminded last night that there are more top scientists that believe in a higher being now than ever uh, in the early 1900s. So it's, uh, so it's, it's interesting how, uh, I'm not sure we're seeing the entire picture here yet. We have a lot more scientists if you just multiply. Yeah. I imagine that, that would get your ratios anyways. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not a fan of the flat earthers. So that's just. <laughs> you, mean you, can't, you mean you can't see me from over there? <laughs> so I know, you, I know you've talked a lot about the future of governance, governance, elections, and better ways of organizing humanity. So that's what I kind of wanted to talk a bit more about now and what your thoughts are and where we're headed. Yeah. That, you know, this topic of privacy is such an interesting topic. See, there, there's a lot of people who are, fall into the camp of uh, the radical transparency advocates. 
and uh, there's there's a lot of this thinking that if we know everything about everybody, we'll live in a much safer society. But the problem is, is that if I know everything about you, then I know what your credit card numbers are, your bank account numbers, your passwords. And so then suddenly we lose our ability to own things. And that ownership ability is is kind of foundational to how society works today. So we need we need some privacy bubble around every individual, but that hasn't been defined legally. It hasn't been defined technologically or even culturally. And with all the emerging technology, it seems like once we create some uh, new privacy bubble that uh, we're going to constantly be piercing the veil of it with this new technology. So, so if we have 180 countries around the world come up with their own their own unique privacy policies, then essentially we have no privacy because because it becomes such a blur that nobody understands all the differences. So, I, in the past, I've talked about this idea of creating what I refer to as a fractal. These are entities that associations or global entities that will will tackle one particular problem like that. And we'll have individual nations that are members of this of this organization. And then we put all of the, the top privacy experts in the world into this organization and they become the ones that set the standards there, they'll set the public policy for the world from there on out. So the the individual nations then still govern everything that goes on in the country, but it's just this one highly technical area then they uh, they allow this uh, global entity then to, to make all the standards for it. And there, there's lots of areas that this could apply to. I mean, do we need uh, an organization that handles all the, the intellectual property for the world? Right now, that's that's considerable mess. Global accounting standards, do we need uh, uh, you know some policy on who owns space and who owns the moon and things like that? So we're going to have a, a number of issues that come up uh, that that this can be worked out with some sort of an organization like that. But this is like the kid suggesting to the parent that they make all the rules. It is in some respect, and it all works better in my mind than probably an actual practice. But <laughs> but there, there needs to be some change in, in how, how this is done because uh, it tends to be uh, a bit of a free-for-all. And, and to think that there's enough uh, like in the privacy era, that that there's enough privacy talent to go around. Uh, I mean, are there really privacy experts in Zimbabwe and Venezuela and uh, uh, the Crimea? I I don't know. Maybe there are. The problem is there's just no incentive. So every major player has the incentive to kill privacy. Governments, <clears throat> corporations, and manufacturers and citizens, the only ones who should care about the privacy, well, they would rather go look at cat photos and post something on Facebook. <laughs> that, that's the problem I see is there's no direct incentive. Everyone's kind of not responsible to everyone else. And all of the incentive goes the opposite direction. Yeah, it's, it's actually like a three-legged stool that we have. Uh, it's privacy, security, and convenience. Uh, we, we tend to give up privacy so that we can have things more convenient for us but that makes things less secure. So we, uh, we, we have to balance those things out in a way that uh, uh, makes sense. And, uh, and I'm not sure that we've come up with the, the best formula for that yet. Does it have to be the EU because the U.S. won't take any type of leadership on anything related to privacy? It, it might have to be somebody that uh, raises their hand and say that we're going to take the lead on it. Yeah, barring any other kind of global entity that, that would have overarching authority, uh, like I've described earlier. Yeah, it'll it'll be some entity like that that will take the lead. I, I can definitely see it with the EU, and yet it feels a little bit ironic just saying 
we're creating a new law and sorry, you guys broke it. So here's the fines. But at the same time, it's also effective. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. Right, right. Yeah. So I think, I think they're, the people of the world are looking for better solutions. I'm, I'm not sure I've seen anything else yet. So I, I suggest ideas like this just as a way to, to start a conversation. And hopefully the better idea comes out somewhere along the way. Speaking of conversations and better ideas, I know you've, you've discussed information or you've called information history or walking, walking forwards, backwards in terms of how people think about the future. All we can kind of visualize is the past. How do we change or shift the way that people think about the future? Yeah, it's, it's real tricky because it's, it's so easy to think about the past because we've all personally experienced the past. I mean, when we look around us, we see evidence of the past all around us. And as you just mentioned, all, all information is essentially history because it, it came from even something we got two seconds ago is history. And so we, we have very few tools for effectively looking into the future, but that's where we're going to be spending the rest of our lives. So it's, it's, it's to our advantage to spend a lot more time thinking about the future. And any company that, that you know, does even a 1% better job thinking about the future than their competitor I mean, that gives them a huge advantage. That gives them, uh, it can be worth billions of dollars. And, that's, and so that's, that's why they're, you know, they're trying to get their head wrapped around uh, these different tools, these different techniques, what we refer to as anticipatory thinking protocols for, um, for understanding the future. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's not possible to, to perfectly envision the future which makes it uh, a bit of an art form, but there's also a lot of good scientific techniques for, for doing that as well. I know one of the problems is in school, we have so many years of history. We don't ever have a single focus on future. Do we need to have a futurism or a sci-fi focused class in school in some way to get people to think about these type of problems? Well, I would certainly be in favor of that. I think, uh, I think that'd be very helpful. You know, there, there's aspects of the future that I can predict with a high degree of probability. So I can predict that the building that you're in right now is still going to be there six months from now. I can predict that with a high degree of probability. I can predict that uh, the Earth's going to travel around the sun in roughly the same orbit, even 100 years from now. I can predict that with a high degree of probability that uh, you know, 50 years from now, we're still going to have summer, winter, spring, and fall. You, you plant a, a handful of seeds in the ground, uh, a certain percentage are going to uh, germinate and spring to life. Even, even to the point where I can predict if I'm going to hold a birthday party two weeks from now, I can plan that and have enough assurances that I can pull that off, that, that that's going to work. Uh, so most of our future is actually being formed around stable, slow-moving elements that we can predict with a high degree of probability. Now, the areas that are the, the least predictable are things like uh, that have to do with, with people and systems and, and animals and weather, uh, that sort of thing. So to the degree that we can get better at predicting uh, the people equation, that, gives, that can give us a huge advantage in the business world. But it's like reading a book. If you could cut out all of the boring stuff, that would make the book more interesting. And the, the, boring, the boring stuff's the things we can predict. The, the big changes, the disruption, the black swan events, those are the things that are harder to think about. How do you think about those? And how would you recommend or wish that society would do a better job? Yeah, I, I, I think there, there are ways of, of actually, um, well, I wrote a column on this topic of anomaly zero. It gets into that whole topic of, you know, the butterfly wings flapping on one part of the world that creates a hurricane on the other. There's this whole 
series of things that come together for a cause a hurricane or an avalanche or a uh, earthquake or whatever, and and I think we can get better at at anticipating those things. I think we can we can understand what's going to create it far sooner than we do right now. So uh, we we can begin to mitigate the damage at a far earlier point, and that that alone I think that changes the the equation considerably. There are something like nineteen patents on controlling hurricanes right now in the United States. One gentleman had come up with this idea that if we see most of the hurricanes that that come to the east coast of the United States, they're all formed on the west coast of Africa. And um, his his idea was to create these buoys that are chained into the ocean and then the wave action of the ocean would cause them to move up and down and, and with the, the way they're designed, they would take the cool water at the bottom of the ocean and pump it up onto the surface. And just changing the surface temperature of the ocean then would dramatically change the likelihood that a that a, a hurricane would occur. Now, the the problem with it is you need to to do a pilot to test out something like that. You, you need to spend I don't know five ten billion dollars put in a lot of those to to just test it out. And so far, nobody's been willing to try that. But uh, but I think I, I think in the future that we're actually going to get better at modeling some of the the natural disasters and start understanding the kind of the context of all these things going on much better. Quantum computing. Quantum computing is going to give us a huge huge leverage in this area because we can we can we can get into the really complicated stuff then because we'll we'll be able to um, to diagnose problems. It'll give us access to so much more computing power than ever before. See, one, one of the dangers of quantum computing is that uh, over probably the next decade or so that all of our in- current encryption systems become breakable. And so then we'll all have to switch to some sort of quantum encryption to keep all of our, our data secure. Hey, Matt here. Wanted to take a quick time out. If you're interested in quantum computing and the future of forecasting, then I highly recommend you check out our episode with Eric Ledezinski, the founder of D-Wave, the leading quantum computing company. They've raised $230 million, and Eric breaks down quantum computing and its implications in a way I've never seen done before. He makes it so simple that my mom could even understand quantum computing, and that's saying something. So if you go to fringe.fm and search for quantum, you'll be able to find the episode, listen, and learn a bit more about quantum computing. But now it's time to get back to Thomas. But uh, yeah, quantum computing is going to open the door for offering much more computing power for at, at the, the source of anything that we're doing. See, right now with, with the driverless technology, before driverless technology can become used worldwide, I mean, we need, uh, we need Wi-Fi everywhere because a lot of the decision-making is made on the car itself, but a lot of decision-making is made in the cloud. So with, uh, with a driverless system, all of the vehicles need to talk to each other, but the information invariably goes to the cloud. You create some sort of a mesh network, but there's there's invariably going to be shadowing areas where mountains in the way or buildings in the way and things like that. So if if a car ran into a washed out bridge or if it ran into a, a deer or a goat or a moose, that it should send that information to the car right behind it. And if there's 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 all these latency periods of getting that information right now. So if it takes 10 seconds for the car behind it to get that information, that's way too long. So uh, figuring out how to, how to bridge these gaps and get information everywhere, that's, that's going to be very challenging in the future. I imagine ARM processors might make it easier just to do the, the processing right on the device. For the quantum part, though, I was, I was more bringing up 
it can often be dangerous because when you feel you have more intelligence, it's actually often just more hubris. So like with, uh, with a hurricanes example, we may think we understand what causes hurricanes, but it's more a symptom. And by changing the underlying aspect, you're changing something much larger than you can actually fundamentally grasp or map as a variable. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's an excellent point. I, I think um, the total amount of human knowledge today represents about a thimble in the ocean of, of life here. Um, our reach exceeds our grasp. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, acceler- it's accelerating very, very quickly. Yeah. What are you most excited about today? Oh, there's, there's, oh, there's so, so many things out there. I, I, I think we're, we're right on the edge of, of so many things in the healthcare world that, uh, I mean, the whole healthcare industry is on the verge of transitioning from an industry driven by pharmaceuticals to an industry driven by, by data. And, uh, I think that's that's a, a fascinating transition. I I think the the world of drones are going to give us capabilities that we never imagined in the past. If you if you think about a city having a fleet of drones that flies over it and is constantly scanning the city, that then we can start creating digital models of the city, create digital twins of the city. Then we can develop search engines for the physical world and we can start putting in queries like where is that dog with rabies right now or uh, what's the most dangerous intersection in the city today or how much damage did that fire fire cause at city hall 10 minutes ago or have a stalker report how close did john doe get to jane doe in the last 24 hours you know that type of search engine will be able to search on attributes that you know, are outside of our present thinking. We'll be able to search on, I want something that smells like this or tastes like this or something with this harmonic vibration or this specific gravity or this level of reflectivity with this texture. All of these things, we won't have to know what it's searching on or what, what attributes it's using, just that it'll know how it gets the right, the best results. And so that's where uh, a lot of the AI stuff comes into play that um, I think will be absolutely fascinating. And there goes your privacy. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, and so, yeah, we got, we got into a discussion last night about that, the, the, the privacy stuff. And, and so we were talking about what, what, what's going to be common technologies or common products that we're going to have in 2030 that we don't have today. And um, one, that, one that came up and resonated with me is this idea of having jammers. That, uh, so uh, anything that's trying to recognize our face or trying to recognize who we are, read our fingerprints, whatever, that can jam it in such a way that, that maintain our, our, our cloak of, of uh, mystery around us, so to speak. Harry Potter, here we come. What, uh, <laughs> what, what futurists, what science fiction books, et cetera, what most inspired you up to this point? How did you get here? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I like a lot of the stuff they're doing at Singularity University. I love Kevin Kelly's stuff, the book Inevitable, really well done. Uh, Tim O'Reilly wrote a book called WTF, What the Future Holds. There's a lot of good stuff out there. And I mean, each day brings something new. We're, we're constantly pushing the envelope. We're trying new, different things. So when, when you think about, we're, we're doing this exercise about what's going to be common in 2030 that doesn't exist today. If, if you turn it around and think about what's common today that didn't exist in 12 years ago in 2006, that's, that's a real interesting question. Because in 2006, that was before the iPhone came out. So we didn't have any mobile apps. We didn't have, you know, Twitter. We didn't have 
the big social media company at the time was was MySpace. We didn't have YouTube. GPS was available, but it was still clunky and didn't work very good. You know, most people carried paper maps in their car. We didn't have backup cameras on our cars. You know, just you start going down the list, there's just so many things that uh, we just take for granted today that didn't exist 12 years ago. So it's, it's fascinating. Then you try to ratchet it forward and think, okay, what's what's going to be common, you know, in, in 2030 that's not around today? Are we going to have printed clothing where you go into stores and you get scanned and they can print your clothes right while you're waiting? Can we set up a rig around a construction site and 3D print a house in less than a day? And uh, as the technology evolves, we're not just printing the structure, we're also printing the wiring in the walls, the plumbing in the walls, the windows, the cabinets, the, in the kitchen, the toilets, the sinks, uh, even the roof, and, and do it in all 24 hours. Is that going to be possible? And then are we getting to the point where if we get tired of our house, all we have to do is grind it up and reprint it? I mean, we don't even have to clean it first? Maybe. All of that may be possible in the near future. It's crazy when you think about just those 12 years, what's happened. And then the fact that I think most people would, would definitely argue that things are going significantly faster now than they've ever been. We're going to have to multiply by an even bigger factor to try to guess where we will be 12 years from now. Well, right. You know, it took, it took McDonald's 27 years to sell the first billion hamburgers. It took uh, Facebook eight and a half years to get the first billion users. It took Uber five and a half years to sell the first billion rides. And Uber has a competitor in, in China called Didi Chuxing that uh, Didi took a little over 11 months to sell the first billion rides in China. So this idea of scalability, if a, if a product is digital, it can scale so quickly that somebody in the future, I mean, you're in business and, and suddenly a competitor comes out of the woodwork and all of a sudden they have 100 million customers and you didn't know about this, this competitor because they didn't exist two weeks ago. I mean, that seems like that's the environment that we're moving into. Speaking of these electric scooters, I think they're going to revolutionize transportation. It just seems so much more obvious. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're catching on. Uh, some people are annoyed by them, but that's that's kind of part and parcel to any startup that we're going to have the detractors. And uh, so I had a, a friend that showed up last night with uh, an, electric, an electric unicycle that he was riding around and he rides it from uh, when he gets off a bus, then he just rides that wherever he, to wherever he's going to go. We've seen a number of these different devices, whether electric skateboards or bicycles or scooters or segways or segway knockoffs. And uh, this, this private transportation stuff, uh, alternative transportation stuff, I think it's just absolutely fascinating. Uh, now, we've, we've oriented all of our transportation systems around cars, and we, uh, everything else has to somehow mesh with cars, whether we want it to or not. But if we don't pay attention to the alternative transportation, then, then uh, uh, kind of by default, then we're, uh, we're encouraging more cars on the road. And, uh, and I was reminded last week that the average transportation speed in New York City is now four miles an hour because congestion management is a challenging problem that is, doesn't have any ready solutions. So, yeah, somehow we've got to work our way out of uh, kind of these, these log jams that we put ourselves in. I think the alternative transit space is really interesting, but I, I would argue that the scooters are 100 times more obvious and effective than the other options. 
I mean, the Segway, the Segway owner accidentally went off a cliff. The, the unicycles, you'd, I would not be surprised if we have a ton of accidents. The bikes aren't that convenient. Skateboards, same problem as the unicycle, but a scooter. If you're not, if you're not coordinated enough to handle a scooter, there's another problem there. Yeah, but they don't appeal to everybody. I mean, there's uh, women in high heels and dresses. They're not going to want to jump on a scooter. Uh, elderly people, probably a little too timid. But they won't use any of the other ones either. Well, right, right. But there's just, it's not perfect for everybody. A, a lot of the, the driverless stuff, though, kind of the, there's a lot of interesting new videos that are coming out. I, I see that uh, uh, cars in the future are going to go through kind of a radical design change because uh, the, the key element is going to be getting in and out of these driverless vehicles when you, when you need to, to get in one. And, and having all the, the kind of the features in play that you need. I, I see a lot of buildings get designed with, you uh, redesigned with queuing stations out front. You know, so you get rid of the parking lot, but then you have vehicles queued up to go whenever people want to uh, to leave. And if you have a lot of people coming and going, these can get kind of elaborate because you might have vehicles designed for handicapped people that you, you might have uh, a special lane for moms with kids. You might have um, other other situations for people that are the, the top-rated customers, the Lexus lane, so to speak, that you have a fancier vehicle for them. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's there's no one-size-fits-all solution for the, the driverless world. And uh, there's there's always going to be that the person that wants the world to know that they've arrived. And so if you can imagine a driverless vehicle pulls up in front of a building, the, the two doors fly open, uh, red carpet rolls out. You have theme song music playing in the background, flames and bubbles, and, and somebody jumps out. And that's kind of the Hollywood entrance. And there are going to be people that want that type of vehicle. Most people are going to want something a little less than that, though. <laughs> yeah, they pull up and then all of us point and laugh. I think we're moving towards a future where brand is significantly less of a factor and it's much more focused around functionality and um, quality versus versus flashiness and and brand and something that is meant to stand for not something but really means nothing yeah so we have the potential to have a far more isolated society when i can jump into a car and just oh drive to chicago or drive to los angeles and, and i can just kick kind of kick back and relax and sleep when i want to and watch video play video games and watch movies and it's, it becomes a very uh, conducive environment for doing those type of trips. Uh, I don't have to make reservations. I don't have to get any plane tickets or anything like that. I can just summon a vehicle and five minutes later, I'm on the road. But that's a very isolating environment. Very likely, uh, you know, humans are social creatures by nature. So we're going to, we, we crave interaction with other people. So having people that are much more isolated like that than I can foresee a time when we have kind of group discussion vehicles traveling around cities where you, know, you can have different topics. And if you want to get into a good discussion tonight on oh, nanotechnology, or maybe you want to get into a topic on oh, retirement strategies or what my best dating strategies are, whatever it might be, that you can summon that vehicle and it'll come pick you up and you can jo join into a group of eight or 10 other people that are sitting around that drives around town while you're discussing those topics. I can foresee a lot of, a lot of things like that that are uh, new business offerings that don't exist today. Speaking of loneliness, we'll definitely have brothels on wheels. 
<laughs> yeah, much much easier to avoid the cops. But uh, there, there's just so many implications. I've written a couple articles on the the future of autonomous driving. I think it's going to be super interesting. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about or bring up for listeners? Oh, I, I think this whole era of driverless driverless businesses is going to be so fascinating. I think the the food truck industry is is paving the way for a much larger opportunity. Today, the the retail industry is all set up around driving people to come to their storefront. But in the future, these driverless vehicles can go to where the people are. I mean, anytime you have a softball tournament or you have a parade down Main Street or uh, some other large gathering, you can just have these vendors show up and and offering services. And if late at night, if you you need some sleeping pills or something, you can just summon a convenience store to show up on your front doorsteps. You go out in your pajamas and, and pick out what you need and go back in the house. I, I think we're going to start seeing unbelievable levels of ingenuity coming out of how to make uh, all of the businesses that are stationary today, turn them into mobile business. And I, th- I think that opens the door for lots of mom and pop operations that are in that uh, lots of people can become enterprising individuals that uh, uh, currently the, the bar is too high in most of the retail areas. Uh, nobody can compete with the Walmarts and the, and the Target stores. And, and with mobile businesses like that, I think it opens the door for anybody to com- compete. It does. As the cost of transportation drops, the question is, do we get more cards on the road and even more of a problem? Yeah, that, there, is, there is that issue. But we, you know, if you think about the operating system for uh, a driverless world, having all the right number of vehicles in the right places at the right time, and then these vehicles driving uh, just at the, at the optimal speed, at the optimal distance from the vehicle in front of it, uh, I think transportation becomes much more fluid. We have less problems with accidents. I mean, right now in the United States, we're we're spending right around half a trillion dollars a year repairing people after car accidents. That's it's just an unbelievable amount of money. Uh, one out of every six dollars in our healthcare system gets spent on that. To be fair, you should divide that number by five or six to have a real cost before healthcare marks it up. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> Well, yeah, but these these problems also have residual effects too, so that they can last on for the rest of your life. Uh, but you know, the the real uh, the safety metric we should be looking at is actually the airline industry. If we can get the automobile industry to become even close to as safe as the airline industry, we just virtually eliminate all these accidents altogether. That is very encouraging to me. I just think that we can do a far better job and uh, put people at far less risk than we do today. As long as we beat the airline industry's on-time ratings, then <laughs> we're all good. Otherwise, otherwise, we're in a lot of trouble. If you were a student today, what would you study, Thomas? Uh, yeah, great question. There's, um, I think material science is going to be a hot topic in the future. I think, uh, I mean, we're still going to need engineers in the future. We're still going to need business uh, startup people. We're going to need managers. You know, 20 years from now, there will still be accountants and nurses, but the tools they use are going to be radically different. So is it the same occupation or will it be something else? We're, we're not automating entire jobs out of existence. We're automating tasks out of existence. And so the jobs get redefined then. And naturally, we can do the jobs with fewer people. And so that's where a lot of the, the morphing and shifting is going to happen in the near future. Um, Depends. Some jobs are, some jobs are tasks. So. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's, you know, it's easy to I think people would be better off learning 
learning a trade right now than, than a lot of the college degrees. There's, you know, there's no startups in Silicon Valley that are that are looking to get rid of the plumbing industry. I mean, there's that's that's one that's going to be around forever. Probably not forever, but uh, it's it's going to be hard hard one to displace. So, are are we going to have electricians twenty years from now? Are we going to have plumbers? Or what are what are the other hot topics? You know, a little over over ten percent of retail has to do with cars. All the tire shops, the brake shops, the uh, the mufflers and the uh, car washes and the auto parts stores, the even the dealerships and gas stations, all of those will go away. At least the customer facing version of them will go away over the next couple decades. Now we'll still need a lot of those services, but it'll be a B2B play to us. As we have the fleet owners that own these large fleets of cars will will somehow have to integrate those services into their offering. And so yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a bit tricky to to think about what what you need to study. But some of the some of the things that aren't being taught today that are hugely valuable skills are how do we how do we manage our distractions? I need a good course in distraction management. I need a good course in in the technology. How do I manage my technology? How do I manage my relationships? How do I manage the opportunities that I'm seeing around me? Uh, all of these these things are are skills that we're going to have to develop. And how do we manage our time in this this type of era and manage our money? And then the people that will be the most valuable in the future are the ones that are going to be the most resilient, the most resourceful, the most flexible, they have, have a high degree of determination uh, to get things done. And those are, those are skills that are really hard to teach. So anyway, those are a few things that come to mind. I think those are very valuable. Continuous learning is the, the way of the world and the way of the future. That's part of the point of Fringe FM. You might hear something interesting and be inspired by one field or another. And then no one's going to do a great job of teaching it. You have to dive into it for yourself. If you're passionate about it, you can become pretty freaking awesome at whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. I want to I thank you for coming on today, Thomas. Where's the best place for people to learn a little bit more about you and what you do? Uh, just go to futuristspeaker.com. Uh, I have all the columns that I write on our, our, our blogs there. And uh, I'm constantly... Uh, updating that and, and putting new videos up. And, and so that's that's the best resource right now. And if I if I put you on the spot and you had to make a bold prediction you've never thought about or talked about in public before, what would it be and why? <laughs> um, so bold prediction. Well, I, I talked about the driverless mobile businesses. The, uh, the, there's, there's a piece of technology that's missing in all of these. And that's what I'm thinking about is a, what I refer to as a geo smart cash register that will know what the right amount of tax is at any place. And so, so that any place you drive, it's charging the right amount of money for anybody in any, any zone. And then uh, and it remits the payments, then the, the tax payments instantly through a blockchain system in, in the form of micropayments. And if somebody can actually invent that, the geo smart cash register, I think that that's going to be one of those world-changing devices that uh, every future merchant in the world is going to absolutely love them. Micropayments are an exciting, exciting area of the future. Thanks so much for coming on today, Thomas. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on and I wish you the best. Awesome. And hopefully this is, hopefully this has been fun, guys. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. If you have, fringe.fm slash iTunes or slash Stitcher, leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe and share it to any friends you think might enjoy. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks. Listener. 
Before you go, if you like Fringe FM, consider making a tax-deductible donation to support our mission. Yes, you heard that right. Tax deductible. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit focused on advancing science worldwide. This means you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation, all of which would dramatically boost the level of good we can do in the world and the quality of the show that we can produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. If you care about our mission, please support our efforts. You are literally deciding whether or not we can continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, that's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.